This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. My experience with OCD is debilitating. If I went on the calendar, I could tell you the day, the time, where everything just changed. I always say it's like a wire disconnected my brain. I start getting these weird, repetitive thoughts. And with every one of those thoughts, it's like getting hit with a tsunami of anxiety. You become a prisoner in your own brain. From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindsided. Mental health, sports, and life. So we're going to do something a little different today, Corey. Turn in the tables. (laughs) The interviewer becomes the interviewee, at least on your part. And that's because you have this incredible story. First of all, you live every Canadian boy's dream and make the NHL. You go to the Olympics. You knock it out of the park. But at the same time, you're living with a serious mental illness with OCD that hits you when you're really young. You've gone through so much to get where you are right now. And I really want to learn more about that story. Well, we're going to cover the gamut here, Diane. And we've known each other quite a long time now. So I think it's uh, it's time to... There's one thing I shared my story in the Players' Tribune in an article. But when it comes in your own words, I think it's a lot more powerful. And um, I think we're going to have a, gr- a great episode here. I really do. Corey... Why don't we talk a little bit, like we do with every guest, a little bit from the beginning, growing yeah. up at your house. Tell me about yeah. your family life and also your early life as a hockey player. Yeah, so I had a great childhood. I had good parents. We didn't have a lot of money, but I had good parents, played hockey. I've always been a goalie. I was always a goalie. And I was, Why? Just, I was just good. Like, I, Well, I love being a goalie because I'd watch Hockey Night in Canada, which we had. And I just loved how each goalie could be a character. Right, you like the, the helmet, the painted mask. They got the best and, yeah, helmets. They do, right? It was the outfit. You, I, maybe it was because you could hide behind it too, right? I, I don't know, but you could be your oh, own that's, character. That's that's way yeah. too deep for us here, Corey. <laughs> We're not. This is not, not a psychological far. profile. Um, but I just loved it. And then, so once I got in into being a goalie, like I was just always good. And then from there, I just grew up like Canadian boy. You, you're as soon as you come out of the womb, you're obligated to play hockey, and so I just kept kept going, right? I'm guessing you were yeah. good at other sports too. Yeah, you can put on honestly, Diane, like and I say this and especially what I'm learning about our show, everybody we interview, they were all just good, right? You're just good. Like Every you can put a baseball one. bat, you yep. can put a hockey stick, you can put whatever it is, I could just do it and do it well, except for basketball, because I'm only five ten. So you could probably still shoot. I can't it was dunk. just you could yeah. yeah you no, could I dunk. hit the rim every time. I'm terrible <laughs> at it. You need to be taller and I'm not. Even goalies now are filling the whole net. You're yeah, small for a goalie, are you not? Well, they're six, seven. It's the game changed. Right. So goalies changed. They got bigger. They play a different style now. But back then, I mean, that was because you had to be quick and move around before they changed the style. Today, I never got drafted, right? Like they look for anybody over six three, and without sounding arrogant, I was always just the best. Like, and then once you get to the NHL level, everybody's been the best, right? Once you get to that that height. But tell me to follow a schedule from Monday to Friday or put my schedule together. <laughs> Can't do it. We'll get to that. Oh, yeah. You know, you say you you would have never been drafted. I never would have made it into medical school, honestly. No, like I, now they yeah. want Mother Teresa wrapped up and, you know, some yeah. fundraising charity guru. You have to be have 87 years of experience to get into medical school now. Well, but you've told me once, too, though, that your was it your professor said, what are you wasting your time getting into psychiatry? Like that is just ridiculous. Why would you throw your life yeah, away? Yeah, why would you throw your life away? Yeah. And and how did you get past that though? Getting, you know, that kind of advice from someone. I think I that, hated parents. I hated yeah. pediatrics enough that I didn't care what she yeah. said I was doing psychiatry. And it was my passion. Yeah. But this is about you. So no, no, here no, you no. are. It's, you're a young guy. We're you're having a conversation. You're, you're moving up. Tell me about moving up through the ranks. Yeah. Um, like I said, it was just always good. I, I remember I was 15. I was playing with 20-year-olds and excelling and so junior hockey came my first year of the draft 
I was eligible for the NHL draft. I didn't get drafted because you could only get drafted the first three rounds. I had a great season, and then the national championship, we played three games. I, I think we lost eight, seven, nine, six, and then three nothing. Like I was terrible, absolutely terrible. I didn't get drafted. That was probably the first time I ever flirted with thinking about suicide. And it was just because I, I was always the best. And and then to have to deal with that, it was embarrassing, right? Like to me, it was embarrassing. And my my self-worth was tied to being a, a hockey player. And again, growing up, and I'll, I'll get into this too, being a redhead, honestly, like you get teased a lot. And I always felt ugly growing up. So a lot of my self-esteem came from from hockey. And that yeah. was a pretty quick transition to we didn't do well in some hockey games and then I felt suicidal. Was there well, was more the draft. depression? Was, was it, there yeah. or the draft? Yeah. But what was underlying that? Yeah, I, I, well, I, I don't, I don't really know. Did right? you I feel mean, depressed? I, I think it was. Did you feel? No, I think my self-esteem, because being a redhead, like I'm getting teased so much, and just, um, I think it really affected my self-esteem growing up. So I'm a smaller guy, and hockey players were big guys, so I never, I didn't have that body type, right? So I'd walk in the locker room, you got guys that are jacked, they're, and I'm just this little skinny guy. So I never ever really felt like I measured up to your typical stereotype of a hockey player. That really kind of messed with my self-esteem. But I was always just so good at hockey that, you know, that's where everybody loved me. So you don't get drafted the first time and you think not, maybe I don't want to play hockey. You think maybe I want to kill myself? Well, it wasn't quite that. But I remember going up to a cliff in Kamloops and just staring at it in my car and looking over and going, you know, nobody likes me. Nobody, you go in the locker room and, and you just get into that really negative cycle. And uh, I remember sitting there and looking over the edge going, well, what would it be like to drive my car over it? And I ended up, you know, I dummied up and went back home. And that was probably the first time. How old were you? 17. And how did you get through it? I, you know, I don't even really know. I, I don't know. You just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And so depression kind of went away because there's the next season. And then that's kind of, you just keep going, right? So I remember... You used to sit on the bus looking out the window, and there's a comfort in depression. And I don't know why there's a comfort in it, but once you're in it and you sit in it, it's like it's tough to get out of. You've heard me ask this question a million times, but depression really is different for everyone. Yeah. So what is depression for you? When you say you're depressed, what does that mean? Uh, when I say I'm depressed, I just not as fun or funnier. I'm not as outgoing. Like I just, I just want to sit and do nothing. And but I just, what do you feel when you're depressed? I feel sad, Diane. No, do you? <laughs> yeah. Some I people mean, feel nothing. Yeah. No, I, I've, I do. I, I, I can, you know, I can cry at a Hallmark commercial, right? Like it's you, like, so you become more emotional. I become way more emotional and, uh, you know, just the negative thought cycle. Yeah. I don't remember depression being severe when I was younger though. Like, I just remember going through tiny bouts of it where I'd go through a dip and then I'd come out of it. I never really thought anything of it. When right? people are depressed, uh, you said they go into bed and they don't get out of bed, mm -hmm. right? But when people talk to me about it, they say, it's too hard to get out of bed. You're talking about something else. You're When you say- There's a comfort in it for there's me. There's a comfort in it. And just think for a sec, because yeah. I, I want, you to, I want yeah. you to kind of give yourself a minute to think about- what does that mean for you? It's just laying there and shutting out the world and just... Could it be it's an exhaustion? Just so tired inside very, that very you well kind of be. sink into it because and let yourself be in it? Uh, you know what? That's probably a very good way to describe it. But I got to wait for the storm to pass. So I'll just say it'll be like three days. Maybe sometimes it's longer. Now I can recognize when it's coming on and to be able to deal with that. But back then, yeah, I mean, it was, it wasn't so much that I would sit in bed. I, I could still do things, but I'd be out with people and just when I'm up, I'm good. I'm, I'm talking, but then like, I'll just go silent and I'll just write and people will be like, you okay? Yeah, yeah I'm all right. You know, so. So let, let's go back now. You didn't get drafted the first time yeah. and that was tough. Yeah, it was tough, right? As it would be for anyone, but yeah. for you. You know what? Everyone would be devastated by that if their heart was in it, but it sounds like it was really, really tough. When you're on a junior hockey team, you spend a lot of time together. You spend like eight hours on a bus. We talked to Daryl Sador. Yeah. Remember? I used to call him Fat Kid Sid, and I apologized. But but we just tease each other, right? But you really just 
So that was me too. But you really kind of take a little bit of it to heart. I mean, I got teased about being a redhead in junior hockey. I got teased about being small or I got teased about, you know, and some of it's funny and laugh it off, but some of it's not. And it kind of sticks with you. So, yeah. So, but. You were already a little set up anyway with the bullying. You, yeah. You're hoping to get drafted. You think it was, you call it bullying? I would never, I didn't, I didn't really think bullying. it was bullying. Yeah. Because yeah. I did it too. Everyone did it though. Yeah. Yeah. The hard part is what, you know, I had two kids who were born redheads. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They had nothing to do with it. Yeah. They just popped out and they were red. Yeah. And the same with you. The things you can't do anything about yeah. that people who are mean tend to hone in on. And then you get the group thing. Yeah. There were some people that yeah. were mean. Yeah. So one foot in front of the other. And then yeah. you get drafted. Yeah. So I got drafted by the New York Rangers. It was in the eighth round. That was, you were 18? Um, I was 18. Where'd yeah. you go from there? I played another year junior. We won the national championship. So this time around, after my when I was 17, we lost. Uh, when I was 19, we ended up winning. This and is Kamloops. This is Kamloops. So, um, who, and, who was on the team with you? Uh, Scott Niedermeyer, Daryl Sador. Just a couple yeah, Canadian with, side shows. Uh, Scott Niedermeyer probably goes down as one of the top five defensemen ever to play ever. in the National Hockey League. Um, so that was, yeah, that was, um, so it ended up great. And I was getting better again. Like a, a guy named Bob Froze, goalie coach for New York, came to Kamloops to watch me play. And we sat, we had a conversation for about three hours. And so then from there, it was nuts. Like it took off. Like I was 19, won a, won a national championship. There's a whole new element. First time I was away from home. So in junior hockey, I moved four or five different billets. Like every time something went a little bit south, I was gone. Like I, I just moved to another place. But it's, so when I'm 20, I go to New York. I end up in Binghamton in the minors. So I get an apartment and the people upstairs would walk and it was loud. And it felt like elephants it sounded like stomping on my head. I couldn't sleep. I'd, I'd be like, I would wake up and I would wait for it. And I would sit there and I'd be like, is it gone? Is it gone? And so um, I kept moving. I moved like five different places until I finally found a top floor place where the, where the noise wasn't. But I mean, it was the anxiety that came with it. And I, I, you would probably know, I, I still don't know what that was. Um, but it was like, I remember in tears sitting in my bathtub, just trying not to hear the noise. But here's the crazy thing. On the ice, I was crushing it. Like, that was the only place, like, like I was in the minors my first year. I was the rookie of the year. I was goalie of the year. I'm 20 years old playing against 30-year-olds, 28-year-olds. And I'm 35 and 4, and I'm playing my first NHL games, right? Like, but it, inside, I'm like... It, you know, this isn't this isn't good. Like so I wanted to go home. You're anxious. You're being oh, yeah. bothered by little things. You can't push them away. No, the noise was like deafening. It was like so loud. So talk about when symptoms really something changed yeah. from from your mental health. Well, no, I was in the Olympics, right? Ninety four. They split the Olympics because they want to split summer and winter. If they don't do that, I never play in the Olympics. My coach from junior gets the job as the head coach of Hockey Canada. I'm still with the New York Rangers, so they were going to send me to Binghamton, worked out a deal for me to go to the Olympics. It was the best year ever. We traveled the world. Guys between the ages of 21 and 24, and we're all single. Like, we just had a great, it was just so, it was the best year of hockey I ever had. But it's the last year I also remember being normal. Everything changed. When you were 20, what yeah. happened? Well, I was 21, but the goddamn Peter Forsberg scored on me in the Olympic final. I'm on a stamp, right? You know that. You're on a stamp. I'm on a stamp in Sweden, yeah. Yeah, so it's, that's pretty cool. Uh, no, but um, so it's one of the most famous goals in Olympic history. So we lost the gold medal game in a shootout, and it was Peter Forsberg. But that has nothing to do with mental health. Um, it just bugs me that I didn't get a gold medal. So after that, I went to New York. I get called up for a week. They're going to send me back to Binghamton. I'm like, I don't want to go back. I'm ready for the NHL. I, like the Olympics, I was, I go into Mike Keenan's office. He's the head coach. And he doesn't look up from the, his desk. And if you know, his nickname was Iron Mike. He doesn't look up from his desk. And I'm, so he goes, sit down. So I sit down like this. And uh, he's like, I hear you don't want to go to the minors. I'm like, no, I don't. I think I'm ready for the NHL. You didn't win a gold medal. You only got silver. Get your ass out of here, close the door, and get down to the minors. And I was like, okay. Yes, <laughs> and, sir. And, but you know what? I probably deserved it. So I end up going down to the minors. Season ends, called up to New York for the playoffs. So now I'm the third goalie for that 1994 run, the famous run for the New York Rangers. Second round, 
in Washington. And I go out with a couple of guys I know who are also, they're called black aces, really is what they're called. They're like the taxi squad. And I remember standing there and I'm having a beer. I'm not drunk. I'm just, we're talking and I'm just like, something just broke. So you were in a bar after a game? Yeah, with some friends and we're talking and then something just, I, I, I always say it's like a, a wire disconnected my brain. I start getting these weird repetitive thoughts. And with every one of those thoughts, it's like getting hit with a tsunami of anxiety, right? Like I'm getting hit with a taser gun. And I don't know what the hell's going on. So you remember the exact moment I can tell you that if you, if I went on the calendar, I could tell you the day, the time where everything just changed. Changed. And then, uh, so. Do you remember the first thoughts, what they were? Well, yeah, the, the first thoughts, and we'll get into this too. And I always had trouble talking about the content, but it was my brain telling me that I was gay. And I knew I wasn't. So it's hard to understand for people who don't have OCD mm -hmm. what it's like to have these intrusive, upsetting, horrifying sometimes yeah. thoughts that keep coming into your head. They intrude on you. You try to push them away. They won't go away. So as much as you can, tell yeah. us what were they like? You're not hearing a voice, but it's your thought. Yeah. Well, so... So this is, this is, there's your irrational brain and your rational brain, right? So my irrational side, one side is, is telling me you're gay, right? So this is how it started. And then, but my rational side is like, no, you're, you're not. Underneath, I always knew I wasn't. And it, this isn't about being homophobic or anything. This is about just what your brain's telling you, grabs onto something and then underneath, you know, it's not true. So then it becomes an epic fight and you're trying to figure out which side is lying, which side's telling the truth. I don't know why my brain picked that. I have no idea. Some people have harm. Some people have religious. Some people, but I also did everything in my head, right? So everyone thinks, oh, the hand washers, right? Oh, oh, that's cute. They, they're clean and that. No, it's not cute. These people can't leave their house. But why did their brain pick that? I, I don't know. I think right? that was the point I was trying to make, Corey, bringing some clarity to that because I know yeah. that your greatest concern has always been what you've said to mm -hmm. me. I don't want people to think I'm homophobic yeah. because having those thoughts was horrible. Yeah. And because the, they were they weren't true. A, they weren't true. Yeah. B, they were intruding on everything that you everything did. Everything I did. So that it, it led you to be suicidal, to have terrible depression, yeah. to be awfully confused, and ultimately to not be able to continue in your career. So it's not about the gay thing. It could have been about anything. Yeah. Because people have OCD symptoms. They have intrusive thoughts about everything under the sun. Yeah. Yours your brain picked, as you said, to have these, these particular thoughts, but they have nothing to do with being homophobic. Here's what I do know. You become a prisoner in your own brain. And so I went home that night and I was like, okay, well, I'll go to bed. Maybe it'll be gone in the morning. Nope. Woke up 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Never left me for three years. Not one second. Only time I had peace was A, when I was on the ice because distracted and I could hyper focus on the ice. And when I was asleep, that is it. You're always trying to figure it out. Like it's just because it, it never leaves. And I was always like, why would my brain lie to me? Am I lying to myself? So that was the part of OCD I didn't understand. And to move on, it got so bad, you get, I, I, it was debilitating because you're so consumed by it and the anxiety is so bad. I remember laying in my bed and it'd be like everything would be shaking. And I'm like, is that a train rolling by? Like, what, what is that? I called my mom out. Now I'm with New York. They're on a run to the Stanley Cup. I don't want to be a problem, but I, I, I'm not functioning. I'm not, like, I'm, like, just hanging on by thread. So my mom comes out, and my mom doesn't know what to do. She's 67. She had no idea. She had did no idea what it was. Did you tell her what you were thinking? I, I did. She was one of the only ones, and, and she's like, well, you know, but she didn't know. So she's trying to reassure me and all this stuff. Um, but I remember going up to the top of the Empire State Building with my mom because I'm just trying, like, okay, let's do some of the sightseeing. I looked over the edge, and I looked back at my mom, and I told her I wish I could jump. And she started bawling, right? Because here's her boy again, and he's on a way to Stanley Cup run with New York Rangers. And she's like, she has no idea what to do. So my mom has to go home because she has to work. And I promise her I won't do anything stupid. Rangers go on to win the Stanley Cup. I drink out of the Stanley Cup, everything. There's a photo of me with it. And the photo, you can see me smiling and 
But what people don't know is I could barely get out of bed that morning. Like, panic attacks. But the photo looks great, right? Like, because you, you can't see mental health. So I was able to hide it, though, right? Because I didn't do anything outwardly with compulsions. So I blow out of there the next morning. 8 a.m., I got a flight. Like, the next morning. Didn't go to the ticker tape parade. Didn't go to any of the parties. And then New York Rangers, because I'd gone home earlier, did, all the brass just thought I was pissed because I didn't play. So now I look like an asshole. To all of the teammates, I, I look like a disgruntled player. And we interviewed Kevin Love, and he said the same thing, right? Like, when you have mental health, people will make up their own version as to why you are, why you're acting that way, right? But often I think they make it up because the person who's struggling doesn't say. Exactly. Because they feel shame. So people fill in the blanks and often yeah. in a very unkind way. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I went home and no, thoughts didn't go away, right? Again, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no relentless, absolutely relentless. I don't know how to get a, I just know something's wrong. So I don't know how to really get a psychiatrist or a therapist or anybody. I open up the yellow pages because I'm old and we didn't have a Google machine back then, right? And I'm like, that's pretty odd. Okay, that's probably a nice person. I'm going to go see them. So I go see this lady. I see her for about a week and she's not qualified or able to diagnose me with OCD, right? Or anything. She starts going, well, maybe this is something you need to look into. Right now, because now at this point, too, I'm having HIV thoughts. This just, the fact yeah. that OCD thoughts and intrusive thoughts change yeah. over they, time. They do. So they, you went from, am I gay, to now I have HIV, well, and then can I give it to switch back everyone? and forth, right? Whatever wanted to grab onto me that, that day. So now I'm mortified because she's like, well, we got to, you got to look into this, right? And so... I blow out of there because now I'm running. I'm trying to run away from my own brain. I go to Camelot's. My girlfriend's there. I spend about two weeks there, and it's not not going away. And I'm really struggling, but I'm hiding it from everybody. So, excuse my language, but I'm like, fuck it. I don't want to be here anymore. I'm done. This isn't going away. I'm not figuring it out, right? So... I'm out again with a, a buddy of mine, and we're just standing there, and I'm having a beer. I'm, I'm not drunk. Thank God I wasn't. But I'm like, fuck it. I'm done. Uh, I, I can't do this. I went, like, emotionless. OCD's gone, no depression, no anxiety, nothing. I just went completely numb and blank. And uh, I'm like, okay, well, how are you going to do this? And I'm like, I have this car that's a turbo. It was a Plymouth Laser back then. But I was just like... Never seen how fast it can go, right? So, and then I thought about the cliff and camels, saw that from when I was younger, and I'm like, okay, let's do this. So I go up in the mountains and uh, hammer on the gas, and I'm like, I'm done. Like, and every time you switch gears, like this turbo in the car would spin and it would suck you back to your seat. So I get up to, I don't know, 120, 140 miles an hour, like I'm like, flying, and uh, scenery is blown by. I knew the corner was coming up. I knew I wasn't going to make the corner. And I just hammered on the brakes. I don't know why to this day. Maybe a sliver of hope. You know, having the thought of being severely mangled and not, and still trapped in my own brain, right? And alive. I sit there and I'm bawling. And I'm asking God, now help me, right? And I, uh, I turn the car around. I go back to my girlfriend's house. And I get in bed with her, and uh, I just put my arm around her. And she didn't know I was 15 seconds away from being a statistic, right? I never told anybody until that article came out in the Players' Tribune. Not a word about that night. And I'm figuring, I'm just, okay, can't do that. I guess I can't kill myself. Now what am I going to do, right? Trapped in my own brain. Well, hopefully one day I can figure it out. So then the Rangers now, they think, you know, I'm just a bad bad teammate because I'm late for practice. I'm so in my own head. I, I'm having trouble having conversations with people because I can't because I'm all, this is always there. So they trade me to Vancouver, which is kind of a new lease on life, right? And I'm still having all this, but it's like I'm still hoping I'll figure it out. Now I'm learning how to function with this. I'm not on my knees anymore. I'm playing. And then uh, my first year in the NHL, everything's different. It's a distraction. And I do want to say this without sounding arrogant, Diane. I made the NHL with a full-blown mental illness. Don't fucking tell me I'm weak. Don't tell me anybody's weak, right? That has mental health issues. 
that's like having two hands tied behind your back. I still made the NHL. And my first year, I'm on the NHL rookie team. I have a great year, but I'm not. It's still going on. But mental health is like anything else. You don't get it fixed and you don't come forward. It's, it's going to, eventually, you got to get it fixed. You can't walk around with a broken leg for three years and pretend it's not happening. Eventually, you got to get it fixed, right? So my second year in the NHL, wheels come off, right? Epic thoughts, thinking I gave everybody HIV on the team, wondering if I'm gay. So, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, what are we going to do? Well, I'll go talk to a trainer and maybe you can help me, maybe you can't. But if you can't, well, you know, I've got option B. I'll just end it. This so is five I, years you've been dealing with no, this No, this is about three. Yeah. So I go down and I take him. We're in Nassau County Coliseum. I'm like, hey, I got to talk to you about something. And I, I walk with him and I haven't slept in like three weeks, right? I haven't slept at all. Like I'm, 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 a, I'm not well. So I, I look at him and say, hey, buddy, you know, like I need some help here. Um, thoughts of suicide and all this and I didn't tell him anything and he looked at me with a blank look on his face like I don't think he'd ever had a player come forward like that now my teammates are starting to notice though Diane I dropped 30 pounds I'm playing in the National Hockey League at 145 pounds guys are looking at me there's a guy named Marty Jell and I remember coming out of the shower and he looks at me he goes what's wrong with you Hershey right a skin and bone so guys are starting to notice we go out for dinners on the road and I would sit there and I would order and the plate would come and I'd be like, I couldn't touch it. And guys are looking at me like, and again, I'm late for practices. I'm late for meetings. All that stuff is happening. So now, and my teammates think I'm a bad guy. Now it's happening in Vancouver. So again, we're in, we're in Nassau County Coliseum. And uh, I play that night. Kirk McLean's hurt, the number one goalie. I play that night. I'm, I'm terrible. I get in a fight. Uh, we lose 5-4 in overtime. I'm awful. And my teammates are starting to fucking hate me pretty much, right? Like, I'm their goalie. Uh, the next day, we got to play New Jersey. We have a morning skate. And uh, I remember standing there in net. I couldn't see pucks. Like, we're doing a, a shooting drill. I can't see pucks. They're just, like, I'm just standing there, like, catatonic. And I had, like, almost an out-of-body experience. I, I don't know. And you, you can explain this later. Almost like, I, I think it's depersonalization or something later. But I, like, I'm, I'm done. Just, like, my brain was just fried. So I go over to the coach. I say, I can't do this. I can't do this to my teammates. And uh, I can't play. And he's like, okay, don't worry. He calls an emergency team meeting in the locker room in New Jersey. Probably the worst thing he could have done. I'm sitting in the corner with my head. And nobody knows what's going on. Hershey's sick. We're going to tell or Hershey's not doing well. Everybody knows this. If anybody asks in the media, he's got the flu. Started the other goalie, right? So in the meantime, I don't know this, but the trainer, Mike Bernstein's working in the background calling, you know, psychology people that worked with the team but I remember after that it was just the most embarrassing shameful I mean I'm playing with like Pavel Bure Trevor Linden Alex McGillney Russ like I'm playing with some big NHL names right and I'm 145 pounds and they're all making up in their own heads what is going on I'd say a, a third of the team under, tried to understand me a third of the team was indifferent the other third tried to get rid of me trade me talking to the GM get rid of this guy right so I remember getting on the bus after that, shower up, getting on the bus. I sat at the front of the bus. One by one, my teammates walked by me. None of them looked at me. They didn't know what to do either. And uh, I looked out the window and I started bawling. And I was just like, I knew, I just threw my NHL career away. I knew it. But Diane, that was the same day I saved my own life. And so I went back to Vancouver. Psychologist, like, I don't know what it was, comes to my apartment. Because heaven forbid an NHL player was seen going into it, right? Comes to my apartment, I'm like, just going to tell him all my shit because, again, I'm thinking, well, hey, I got two options. I tell him this, and if this is a problem and it's like whatever, and he doesn't know how to help me, well, you know, I've always got plan B. So I just view everything out to him. And probably, you know, I always say 20 to 30 minutes, but it might have been longer. He looks at me and he goes, you have obsessive compulsive disorder. And I'm like, what? Yeah, you have obsessive compulsive disorder. It's very treatable. It's not curable. You know, you're going to have to do the work and all that. And I remember sitting there bawling. Three years of my life gone, right? Just gone. Because, like, the story of the Empire State Building, my mom had to remind me about that when I started doing all this. Couldn't remember. So, again, that night I go and I shut out Dallas because it's like a relief. I, I play really well. But from there, 
it was a battle. I, I didn't want to go on medication because of the stigma of medication. I thought it would ruin my hockey and all that. But I, it's slowly getting worse again, right? So I go, I take medication finally. And doctor puts me on this mat, these meds. And I remember playing in Ottawa and a, a player hits me right in the chest and the puck drops in front of me. But the meds, he didn't really know how, you have to know how it's going to affect somebody play. There's lots of great meds you can play on. But these ones, it was like, and I remember seeing three pucks on the ground. And I was like, tried to put my hand on the middle one. Guy goes, ends up burying it in the net. Wait, I think I got pulled that game anyways. But from there, I'm still not telling anybody, right? So everybody uh, end up, you know, my career ends up, I get bounced around, which is, it's all right. But it's, um, it was 10 years after that before probably six, six therapists or six doctors that I went to that, um, until finally somebody could help me. And it was just blind luck. So I go in and he, the therapy is called the ERP. It's like CBT on steroids. It brought me to my knees and it was awful and it was hard, but it also worked. But after that, it was another 10 years before the article came out in the Players' Tribune where I told everything, right? Suicide attempt, uh, everything that happened to me during my career. And there'd been guys that came before me that told stories, but they wrote books. So it didn't hit. So when the Players' Tribune article hit, it was it hit fast because it was you know it was readable what if what if what if but anyways it was like an apology to my teammates and they all called me a lot of them and they're like how did i not know right well a couple of people we interviewed yeah. apologized to you so you're apologizing as a a very very mm-hmm. young man with no understanding of what the heck is going on yeah and all of these older Coaches and managers and players are looking at this boy disintegrating in front of them. Oh, absolutely. And nobody said, what the hell? Yeah, because they didn't know, Diane, though. I don't blame them. Like, I don't. They didn't know. They didn't know what to do because we're not taught it in school. But we're not talking to any conversations here. You had to go to the trainer and say, I'm falling apart, even though everyone knew you were falling apart. And I think it's it's the power of stigma that continues to be a problem now. But that was the bravery of you coming out with that Players' Tribune article. But I felt safe at that point, too, because so many people had come before me, right, like that paved the way, and I felt like it was ready. And the way the article hit, I think it was almost like, the perfect timing of that article coming out that people wanted to hear it. And I think that was part of it. But still to this day, it's one of the most read hit articles. And like, there's been some massive names in the Players' Tribune. And I'm like, I, like my, the hits on online are, are still up there. And I, I still have people emailing me about it. It was 20 years from diagnosis. It wasn't, it wasn't the next day. It was 20 years, six different therapists trying everything you can't just go see one. If it's not a fit, you got to keep going. You got to keep trying, right? Some people, they think it's not like a, a family doctor. It's a personal relationship and finding somebody. But but yeah, 20 years, right? So again, it was almost an apology to my teammates too. Yeah, it was, um, it was the best thing I ever did though because the chains fell off. The first therapist, I'm not sure if it was a psychologist or a psychiatrist you talked to, said, you have OCD, which yeah. from, from my patients, when I meet them the first time, and I'm able to say, I yeah. understand what's going on, this makes sense, and there's a way forward. That in itself is a therapeutic yeah. experience. But unfortunately with OCD, because it is difficult to treat, one of the most difficult things I treat and hard to find the right treatment, and you need a combination of medication and talk therapy, it's, it's, it's yeah. a bit of a, a tough journey. Well, medication saved my life, Diane. And there's so much stigma about medication. And also, every a- antidepressant out there works, but it doesn't work for everyone. Yeah. So you have to actually put in the time. You have to have the right doctor who's willing to go through that journey with you. Mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted to hit on, Corey, is the fact that life continues to happen as well. Yeah. So you have a chronic illness and often comes with depression, with anxiety. Mm-hmm. You've got some other things going on as well. Not So most mental illnesses don't just live alone. You just have OCD. Yeah. But life also happens. So yeah. when you were with the Canucks, you, you had significant OCD symptoms. Can you talk about what you were doing to try to get through the day to, you were hiding this from your yeah. teammates, how did that play out? There's, I mean, 
I don't call them lies. I call them excuses, right? So you're, you're always making up something that happened. This happened, so that's why I'm late. Or this happened, that's why, you know. But I remember um, my practice was at 10. You had to be there by 9.15, 45 minutes before. I was living in an apartment that was about two, two three minutes from, from the rink. So I would lay in bed and I would time it to get up so that I could get to the rink right on time, right, uh, at 9.15. But, I mean, most guys show up at like 10, at 9, 8.45. So I'm always the last one there. My hair is disheveled. I'm always, like, dressed like, like I don't give a shit. So I, I, I'd always be late. So my first year with Vancouver in the NHL, I was the first guy on the ice that's excited about the NHL, last guy off, right? I was functioning, worked my ass off. Um, to the second year, uh, you know, I wanted to spend as little time in front of my teammates as I possibly could. Why? Because I didn't want them to know. To What would they know? Well, they could just, I, you know, you felt like it was written on your face. It's not. But they, you know, you just, you don't want to see it. Like, all of a sudden, you, you, you know, I was trying to hide from them. Um, so I would do, I would do things like that. Second year, I'm like, when the wheels were starting to come off, you know, practice, I'd just stand there. No work ethic, no nothing, right? So your teammates have gone to see you from the hardest working guy on the team to like, who's this lazy, you know, goalie? Was that just a, so th there was, there was all sorts of little things that you would do really latched on to, uh, the girl I was dating, which ended up being my wife. And, and I'm still having all these thoughts, even though I'm with her, but I fall in love with her, and that's a whole different thing. So I really latch onto her. I'm not going to hang out. I'm not hanging out with the guys anymore. So the year before, I was like, oh, with the guys, I'd hang out. Like, I'm functioning, but I still had all those thoughts. So I went from really, just really withdrawing from all my friends. And again, those are things, those are all symptoms of, of somebody struggling, right? I wasn't a big drinker, but we drank a lot early in the NHL. Never got into a drug habit. Thankful for that, right? Because it could have gone very badly. Something yeah. interesting you said is, I, I thought they could see yeah. it written on my face. Even though it was all going on in your head, these yeah. thoughts, what would they be able to see? Yeah, well, they, they couldn't, but you would just be like, it just felt like. They could tell that I'm having some, these not, thoughts. Not so much that they could tell, but they'd find out. They'd find They're some, gonna find out. Somehow they could find They're out. They're going to find out. And was that a thought you have? Was that another obsessive uh, thought? I don't think it was had? an obsessive thought. I think that was legit. Because, you know, like I said, I'm starting to lose weight and I'm starting to be non, non-functional again. Mm -hmm. So spend as little time in front of them. So those are probably the ways I, I tried to hide it. I can't remember any specific stories. Just to touch on, Corey, one of the things you said was I waited in bed till the last minute and I timed it, but I was still late. Yeah, you never. And that's not necessarily OCD, right? Maybe some of it was avoidance. No, 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 yeah. But also you have ADHD. Which I didn't know at the time. Which you didn't know at the time. So your ability Which, thank to— thank you, Diane, for letting me know <laughs> that I'm 45, 46, that I have now. Despite mountains of data, yeah. too many people still don't believe that adults have ADHD. I thought it was a kid's thing, right. boys, right? But there's a lot of girls, too, that, that have it. Diagnosing it later in my life, I look back and I go, God damn. You are yeah, the poster child, sense. in fact, for, for yeah, ADHD. Yeah, right? I remember how I talked about, um, like, you just put a hockey stick in my hand and all that, uh, and I'd just be good at it. I've had to learn how to put a schedule together. Like, I've had to have therapy to, like, like a, th a third grader can put a, a schedule together. Like, and I still still don't see it, but, you know, losing things and being late, not, not reading. I don't read emails and texts fully. I'll read, like, words. So your ability to organize, to plan, that to schedule, to show it. up on time, I don't see you it. procrastinate, you... I don't see it. No. I just don't. And that's the best way I can describe it. I don't see it. Organizational skills, I don't see. Impulsivity, the jumping around, those sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, I mean, impulsivity is a big one, very spontaneous and stuff. All of those things And you can together. see, though, too, like, I read something on, on a Reddit, and this woman described dating someone with, with ADHD. And it was like, it pinpointed me. It was like the same guy that could turn a hilarious run-of-the-mill trip to the doctor into like a side-splitting, you know, funny thing that, you know, made her the center of attention that was kind and awesome was the same person that, you know, things could heat up quickly, lose things, 
job to job, you know, losing jobs, getting jobs. Um, and it just was like trigger that hair trigger me temper to a T, absolutely yeah. to a T. And I'm still working on those things, but but it hurts like because you're not trying to be that way, but people think you're you look dumb. And then people think you're stupid or they just think it's not fair. Like uh, they call it time blindness too. So I remember one, I was coaching somewhere and I won't say which team, but I went to the wrong airport because I didn't read the email properly of what airport we were going at. We always go out of the same airport. So I go to the other airport. So now I'm 30 minutes late for the plane. Everybody's on the plane. The whole team's on the plane. It's NHL team. And they're waiting for me. So I get on the plane because I get to the other airport. And one of the management, a high management, I won't say is, almost yelled out, well, you can't fix stupid. And I just went and I sat in my chair and I was just like, you got to be fucking kidding me, right? Sure enough, I got fired at the end of the year. Not renewed, right? But remember how I said my life, everything, I feel like I finally learned. I wouldn't say I'm not in control, but to not try and control everything, like I try and control everything and just let things happen because I always ended up where I'm supposed to be, right? So through all those things, I'm sitting here with you. I'm sitting here with a great production team that like, I couldn't be more blessed. Like we meet randomly, right? Uh, at your book launch. And Which it's is like, funny because yeah. I know you can't, you can read, but you can't read a book. Oh, God, no. And like, that's because you have ADHD. Well, so, I, can, I can read pages, right? Right. I can but, and get through it. So but. what people don't understand about ADHD is, it first of all, doesn't have anything to do with intelligence, right? You can be stupid and have ADHD or you can be brilliant. people with ADHD brilliant incredibly and smart. And ADHD. And right? I'm a genius. And you, of course, are a genius. But when I ask, one of my favorite questions to ask an adult is, have you ever read a novel? Did you read those novels in high school Maybe that one. you're forced barometer rising or whatever? And they can't. It was and great. So that was what great about being a junior hockey player is girls would write your essays for you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you see, that's a workaround. That shows your intelligence. But they just simply can't. My brain does no. not work. I'm not able to do something boring. But... So they can't focus on that, but they can hyper-focus on mm -hmm. something that's exciting. So people will say, well, I can I can play a video game for eight hours straight. Oh, yeah. Because that grabs my brain. For you, hockey, right? You're oh, when yeah. you're when thing. you're in the boards there, that is your place, and you can hyper-focus and you deliver. But when you but then you imagine here's this young man who has ADHD, like poster child for ADHD, oh, yeah. ADHD on the wall, and OCD. And still you're performing, but it just becomes too big. Yeah. It, it, it becomes it, overwhelming. It's too much. It's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. That That's what you live through. Yeah. So, and getting diagnosed now later with that, I mean, a lot of stuff makes sense now. And it's, but sometimes it's hard to look back because you're like, ah, you know, really? And there's a grief to it when you, when you find out, but there's a, you know, there's a positivity to it now. That's what you've done, Corey, is all of this grief, all of the pain that mm -hmm. you've lived through. What I watch every step of the way with you on this incredible journey is, okay, that happened. Another shot here. I got a, a, a sucker punch here, a gut punch there. And then you say, how can I make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else? Yeah. How can I help someone else? I don't want them to get that phone call. I don't want them to live three years with intrusive yeah. thoughts, false thoughts. Sucked. And I remember one time you said to me, I don't think it's right that I had to learn about OCD by having it. Mm -hmm. That's what we're trying to do here, right? Well, and it's gross that we don't teach it in our schools. And some schools have tried, but if I could have, that day that it kind of, I already said my brain broke, are the wires disconnected? If I knew to go, what it kind of what it was, and go see, get diagnosed the next day, I wouldn't end it up on that mountain, right? So we always have mental health in my in my home because I know what happens, right? One of my children came to me when, when they were fifteen. Dad, I'm having some funky thoughts, right? Because we always I said, hey, you know, it's all good. We always talked about it. So I take her. They get diagnosed with OCD as well. She will never get to that place that I got. Is it hard for her? Yes. She will never get to that place because we talked about it in our home and because we had an open dialogue about it.
There's something I want to hit on that you mentioned earlier. So people sometimes throw around, oh my, I'm so OCD. <laughs> I, I'm not big into the like PC stuff, but it's like most of the people I know with OCD have tried to take their own life at some point, And some have been successful. If you're debilitated, you're not debilitated just because you're clean and organized. Does not. There's no such thing as a little OCD. That's why a lot of people don't talk about the content. So, I mean, I didn't have this one, but there are actual people I know that had pedophilia thoughts, right? And it's because it's the most horrendous thing they can think of. You know, what if I'm that? So they, I, I know that they would go to the police station and go, because uh, they, they're like, they don't, it's the what if, it's the doubting disease, right? And they're the most, they're the kindest people that would never hurt a child. That's why they don't, we don't talk, that's why it took me so long to talk about my content because I didn't want anyone ever think I was homophobic, right? It, it's the content and it keeps you prisoner in your own mind because if someone, I told someone this, they'd think I was nuts or they'd think I was, you know, there's harm where I, I know people that had to take all the knives out of their house because they're, they're like, I'm going to stab the dog, right? But and it's it's the content every and it's anxiety and disorder, never, yeah. Every anxiety disorder, Corey, is associated with a fear. And the fear associated with OCD, mm -hmm. which is no longer an anxiety disorder, but the fear associated with OCD is harm, doing harm, yeah. harm coming to somebody else. Well, the catastrophe, else. the spin, right? Well, but that that harm that... What does it mean that I gave everyone HIV or I have this thought that I could be a pedophile, but I'm not a pedophile. I'm not attracted yeah. to children. Mothers, new moms with newborns who have this thought, I have this thought I could put my baby in a microwave. Mm -hmm. Oh my no, God. It's just a thought. It doesn't the, mean anything. The last thing on earth I want to do, oh, what's going to happen? And what do they do? They won't tell anyone because then they think, yeah. well, children's service is going to take my kid away, but I don't want to put my kid yeah. in the microwave. Why am I having that thought? Yeah. They, these hold you hostage. They keep They do. And, They're and awful. And then people don't want to talk about it because it's like, they think I'm crazy. Someone's going to put me in jail for that. But it's, you know, it's just the thought. The best way that I describe it when I describe it, Diane, is that we've all had that thought of cars are coming one way, you're going the other way. It's a two-lane road. We're like, what if I just turn the wheel into the other lane? Well, there'd be a car crash, catastrophe. Everybody would die. It would be all your fault, right? So a non-OCD brain would just go, that was a silly thought, and go on with their day. My brain, I would go home. I would think about it for hours. I'd ruminate on it. I'd be like, is this something like, what am I like? And, and that fight between the irrational and rational. And then I would just stop driving my car, right? So to avoid catastrophe. When nothing's going to happen. But because your brain is lying to you, and it was interesting because I saw Matthew Perry from Friends on an interview, and this really helped me because he had alcohol problems. And he said, what I had to learn was is that my brain was lying to me. And that was like the light bulb went off for me. Like, because I never, why would, your, why would your brain lie to you, right? Your brain's lying to you if you get severe depression. It's telling you you're worthless. It's all, that's not true, right? And it's the same with OCD. Your brain just is lying to you in a different way. When I was struggling at my worst, I found zero hope that I was going to get better. So that's a, another reason why we're doing this show. I want to give people hope because hope is what kept me going. And it does get better. And I'm living proof it gets better. And I promise you it gets better. If you put in the work, there's always a path ahead. Just like you always told me. <laughs> so my experience with OCD, once I found the proper help, I, I felt it when I did the work. Um, it was treatable, but you had said, had mentioned that it's for you. It's one of the hardest things to treat. So I'm, I'm fascinated by, you know, why in your experience it's difficult to treat. When I said treating OCD is one of the most difficult things for me to treat, the reason is because people have complicated symptoms that morph. They never just have one thing. They often have ADHD, another anxiety disorder, depression on top of it, multiple things. Finding the right medication, which is usually a combination, treating everything at the same time, and then being able to prevent them from having future episodes, that's what makes it difficult. It's a severe disorder. Part of my job is we have a whole bunch of different treatments to choose from, mm -hmm. but they don't work for every brain. Every brain is unique and everyone has a different need. 
And often you require higher doses of medication, combinations of medications for OCD. Mm-hmm. So, and it's sticky. Once you've got a thought, first of all, it sticks in your head. And then once we loosen that one thought, okay, now I don't, um, you know, the gay thought was there, but it's a little looser now. And now it's replaced with the HIV thought. It's like a thought. snake, right? It just slithers everywhere. It slithers through your brain yeah. and it, it sticks. You get stuck on things and you can't unstick them. And when finally, poof, got that one unstuck, whoop, some, something mm. else has come in its place. And so to try to manage OCD for me with my patients is always putting them in the center. I am the navigator, they're the captain of the ship. I got to find a treatment that they tolerate, mm-hmm. that makes them feel better, that removes their symptoms, and also helps them not to have more symptoms after yeah. that. And that's tough to keep get them into remission and then staying in remission. OCD is treatable. The first person you saw who talked to you about this was right. This is a treatable disorder. It can get better. There's always a path ahead. But it takes a lot of time, and both people have to be engaged, the the doctor as well as the patient, in order to find the path ahead. Well, a lot of people at the ERP, they found too difficult, and they quit. But it it has the most evidence. A lot Medication is important for most people, but not everyone. ERP, it's exposure and response prevention, is clearly the most effective treatment yeah. but man it's it's tough it is tough you know you know that's that's very valid that's i i do i do agree in that sense that it is difficult but they're there but want to make sure that people know there's treatment out there Absolutely. just because it's there's always a path ahead yeah there's always because it, it sounds like it's diff- doesn't mean that it's not true and i'm proof of that i have to ask this Corey. you know this i ask these couple of questions at the end of every interview what would you tell Looking back, with all you know now, what would you tell your 15-year-old self? Don't go behind the net in that game because someone's going to smoke you and you're going to get a two-day concussion. So there's that one. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, what would I tell myself? That it's going to be okay. It's all going to work out. You're not going to like a lot of the things that happen. There's going to be good days. There's going to be bad days. But it's all going to work out. It's all going to be okay. And you're going to be living proof that things get better, that things don't stay the same. And that's a a really good question because 15-year-old me thought everything was going to work out. You got your life planned, right? Everything's going to work. Oh, yeah. I'm going to do this. I'm going to play in the NHL. I'm going to get married. I'm going to have kids. Everybody's going to be happy. Life doesn't work out that way, right? And the things you go through are what are going to make you the person you will be and it's, they're going to make you stronger. They're going to make you better. And everything's going to be okay. You've had a lot of achievements. And I know sometimes you've struggled to actually view things as real achievements. But when you look back in your life, what would you say your greatest achievement is? Well, I mean, everybody's, you know, my children, of course. But on a personal standpoint, I'm still here, Diane. And we're grateful for that. I know why my what my hope is to bring out of this, but what for you really brought you into this and asked me to do a podcast together? I went to medical school after I did pharmacy school. Then I went to medical school and I loved everything that I did. I could have been, I could have delivered babies. I could have been a surgeon. Everything about medicine I loved. But psychiatry grabbed me. I felt like first of all, incredibly interesting, love the brain, just blows my mind when I think about, you know, how the brain works. And so it's a very exciting part for me. And I loved learning about medication as well. You don't learn to be a psychiatrist until you actually are one, even though we do this long residency. And working with people who are suffering from a mental illness made me recognize just how vulnerable these individuals are. And you talk about that vulnerability. Here you are, a, such a young man. You're where millions of Canadians over the years have dreamed to be, and your brain is taken over by OCD. So for me, the most important thing was helping my patients to be able to live their full life, to function in the way they wanted to, as parents, as partners, as hockey players, or whatever you want to do. I wanted to help. And what I found was I was working in a system where all I did was fight. 
to get the right medications covered, to get people therapy, to be treated respectfully within the healthcare system. And I, I had a patient who I sent to hospital, which I did everything to avoid because of how they were treated. And when she, she went over there, I begged her, and she actually had her mom go with her. And while she was there, and she wasn't fully escalated, she wasn't so ill that she was out of control, they ripped her clothes off her. And while they were doing that, somebody sexually assaulted her. So they took her clothes off in the emergency department, and somebody touched her inappropriately. And I remember the phone call from her just screaming at me, saying, they... They touched me. They took my clothes. You sent me here. And I, I was just devastated. And I remember calling the head of the hospital and saying, what is going on? And his response was to say the very, he was kind to me, but was so disheartening of there's nothing we can do. This is how they behave there. My patient left the hospital and killed herself. And that was the beginning of the end for me because I'd always been very good at bucketing. I can't wear my patient's pain because if I wear everyone's pain, I'm no good to anyone. I can't wear that because I can't help if I'm devastated. But sending someone to be sexually assaulted in a healthcare facility and being blown off it took all my power away. And that's when I, I just, I became burnout. I can't keep doing this. It's too hard to, be, to fight against the system. So I took a year off to write my book. I met you. <laughs> and my goal is to educate. Knowledge translation is my thing. Try to take something really complicated like how the brain works and make it accessible to people because if we give kids a vocabulary, you, we know about our body starting in kindergarten. This is mine. This is how it works. We need to talk about how your brain works. What's normal? What's not normal? What is anxiety versus what's just worry, right? Kids now, oh, I can't write my exam because it makes me nervous. Well, yeah, that's kind of good, right? So what, what's bad? What's not bad? We have to change the stigma associated with this because the most vulnerable people are being harmed by not being able to access care and by the way they're treated. And that's my goal. My goal is through you and what we do here together on our podcast to educate. And that's why we bring rock stars like yourselves and other elite athletes here because we want to normalize this. And in everything else I do in my professional life, it is saying, stop that. These are vulnerable people. They're good people. They're like you and me. Every one of us is affected by mental illness, and we have to do better. So I'm trying to do it with every tool I have, but it started by that. Yeah, and I'm so sorry. I she mean, had a child who has had to grow up without her mother. And I knew this is a system that's bigger than me, so fuck that. I'm taking it on. Like, I have to change the way this have, happens. And you have. The way people are treated. Mm-hmm. The most vulnerable, this is how we are judged as a society, how we treat our most vulnerable individuals and people who live with a mental illness, especially when it's acute, the most powerful people, we know yeah. that, strong, good people have mental illness. But when you have an acute illness, when you're really ill, you need to be protected. Mm -hmm. And we don't do that. No, And that has to change. But I will say this, Diane, out of any win I ever got in the NHL, Olympics, silver medal, what we're doing here and what we do when someone we've helped someone doesn't even compare. So everything that's happened in my life, everything that's probably happened in your life, I don't know if I am where I'm supposed to be. And this is what I was meant to do. Does that mean I'm going to avoid pain the rest of my life? No, no, things are going to happen, right? But if we can help somebody lessen their pain and maybe know that there's always a way out. Give them some hope. It's worth every second of what we do. It is. Um, and you know what? I love you as my friend, of course, because what you've done for me and what you've done for my children too, I, I can't ever repay you. 
And I'm so blessed the day that I met you, and, and thank you. I feel the same way, Corey. And I love watching all the men on our show tell each other that they love each other. It's Absolutely. the best thing ever. <laughs> Absolutely, right? PlayersTribute.com